So the English Standard Version of God's Holy Word, chapter 23, verse 1. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are, are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah, to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him. And he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down, as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh, in the hill of Helkiah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure 
know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there for it is told me that he is very cunning see therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information then I will go with you and if he is in the land I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah and they rose and they went to Ziph ahead of Saul now David and his men were in the wilderness of Ma'an in the Arabah to the south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Ma'an. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Ma'an. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. A messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Thus we read in God's good and perfect word, may he bless all who hear it, believe it, trust it, and obey it. Amen. Amen. A delightful historical account. For, uh, for our introduction, I wanted to ask you a question. It's one of those old I don't want it to be a canned question because it does provoke thought, so bear with me. If you were stranded on a desert island, hang on, if you were stranded on a desert island far from home, what books would you want with you? I'm I'm not trying to psychoanalyze you, but uh, let's say you can have a couple, maybe three. Of course, I, I would want you to say the Bible. What other books? Would you bring Shakespeare so you could read at length? And have your mind and your heart uh, have that escape into great literature? Would you bring comic books so you have something to look at and read? What would you bring? It's interesting to think of all the answers. Of course, if you've heard that question asked and answered in the smart way and in the practical way, you would know that one of the wise things to do is to bring a book on survival in the wilderness or bring a book on how to build a boat if you're stuck on a desert island. Very practical, right? David, in this chapter, is in the wilderness. It's not a desert island, but he is on the run. And in one case, the text says he went wherever he could go. Yet, what does he have with him in this wilderness? He has his God is with him. Both for his spiritual comfort and hope but also for his practical escape. God provides. And I want to highlight it right at the very beginning, verse 6, because in the midst of all the the Hebrew names and the geography that no one here likely understands, we'll talk about it a little bit, don't worry about that, there's this reference in verse 6 that is one of the keys to the whole chapter. And because it's sitting there and it kind of sticks out, you should be asking questions when you read it and say boy that verse sticks out what did verse 6 say can you see it for yourself when Abiathar the son of Ahimelech had fled to David okay that was the last chapter 
He's the only surviving priest because Saul killed them all. Uh, He flees to David. He came down with an ephod in his hand. Okay, why is the Bible telling us that this last priest, this young guy who escaped to David, has an ephod? What's the big deal? Well, we should know that the function of the priest was to speak to God for the people and to hear from God and communicate to the people. And this ephod, this priestly garment item, was a symbol of that communication role. So it is a clue, it is a signal to us, and it was a very clear signal to David that the Lord would be accessible and the Lord would be with him. It's kind of like saying if you were on a desert island or you're stuck in the ICU, you could have your Bible. That's how profound verse 6 is. That David had access to the Lord, to his presence, and to his guidance. David had a spiritual counselor in this priest. And verse 6 is true even in the passage before. When David is talking about whether he should go into Keilah or not, he's praying, and I'm sure Abiathar is there helping, and later on. And verse 6 is kind of like the caption to these events. How precious precious it is for us to have the 66 books that go into the Bible. The Old, the New Testament, the letters, the words of Jesus, the Spirit's words through the apostles and the prophets. God has spoken. God has so much to say. And we have this with us in these difficult days. Praise God. Well, as we look at the first part of the narrative, verses 1 to 14, I see here the compassionate care of God. The compassionate care of God. And it really begins uh, with a look at David showing compassion for people in the land. See here first, David, the servant of the Lord, a man after God's own heart, is himself showing compassion to others. He hears that this little town on the fruited plain of uh, uh, the Holy Land, uh, 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 Keilah, and and in Hebrew, Keilah is clearly three syllables. When I see it in English, to me it only looks like two. So every time I see it, I'm in that struggle. Keilah. It is in the Shephala. In other words, you have the Judean hills, and then you have the plain as the land moves closer to the sea and towards the Philistines. And that land was a, like the breadbasket, that fruitful plain out of the Judean hills. You would go down onto that plain, and that's where this little city was, southwest of Jerusalem, if you're looking at the map in the back of your Bibles. It's a tiny town. It's probably not on the map that you have. But that map, that farming center, that Iowa-like place was under attack. And not only were the people in danger, but the crops were in danger. They're robbing the threshing floors. There's some harvest going on. And what's the consequence? Well, people will starve. How was David and his band getting their food while they were on the run? From the villages that would support them. So this was a dangerous situation. But David has compassion on those people on that town and he risks going to war against the mighty power of the Philistine army to help his neighbors. He shows his compassion for the town. And before he goes, 
He prays and seeks the Lord, and the Lord will give him direction. It's interesting that uh, before he goes, when his army is doubtful about the endeavor, verse 3, David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? They're already on the run from Saul. Why go pick a new fight? How does David respond to these men? Mighty men, warriors. He doesn't berate them. He doesn't just call them to snap to and suck it up and let's go do this. David shows that he has a heart after God. He has compassion. He may have given them a look. We don't know. But what does he do? He consults the Lord again. David is displaying his compassion not only with the townspeople, but with his men that he serves. All the while, he is on the run. All the while, David needs support and help, but he's giving. It's a sad point of of matter that, uh, uh, as we find out later, that the people of Keliah, once they're rescued, will turn in ungratitude against David. Though David helps them, and do they owe him anything? Oh, yes. He's recovered their livestock and their crops. Those people are safe because of David. But they are willing to abandon him to Saul if Saul shows up. Christians don't exercise compassion for what we can get in return. And indeed, much of the compassion we show is rebuffed. And the people that we help may very well turn against us. They may bite the hand that feeds them. If you've been involved in mercy ministries, you know that sometimes happens. But it should not affect who we are and what we resolve to do. David here is an excellent example of compassion like the God who has compassionate care for him. Let me point out once again that consulting the Lord is key. He does it twice here while he's in Keilah. Uh, He's got access to a priest, and the ephod is there in verse 6. He has access to the guidance of God. And as William Blakey points out, though a new danger had arisen, the old refuge still remains. The old rugged cross. He can still turn to his God even when new dangers and new difficulties and new challenges arrive. We don't always know who's at the door when the bell rings late at night or when the phone rings and it's a voice that you were not expecting with news you were not expecting. When new dangers arise, the old refuge remains. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. What a great example we have in David consulting the Lord. Notice the intentional contrast we have, not only in this chapter, but really throughout the whole book, between Saul, the worldly king, and David, the godly king-to-be. There are intentional contrasts in every chapter where these two are mentioned. This might be the epitome of all those contrasts. What do we see Saul doing? We see Saul presuming and plotting. He hears, oh, where's David gone recently? He's gone to Keilah. 
that city has a wall. It's going to be hard for him to escape. It's hard for people to get into a walled city, right? Limited access points. It's going to be hard for him to get out. So if I go there, I've got him. He's mine now. He's made a mistake. And, and Saul is counting his chickens before they're hatched, before the egg is laid. That's the way Saul rolls. He no longer prays or consults with the Lord. He hears this rumor and he acts on it with this worldly confidence. Confidence in himself, confidence in his own wisdom. What a contrast to David. Because of Saul and his uh, helper Doeg the Edomite and the, the killing they did in the village of Nob, other, other villages are taking Saul very seriously. So Saul's riding high on his presumption. He's letting his reputation strike fear into his countrymen. By the way, what was Saul's job again? He was king of Israel, and yet he's attacking cities in Israel. Who's really serving the nation? Isn't it David who's going out against the Philistines? He's helping the town at harvest that's about to lose all their food. Well, Saul's sitting around plotting. It's kind of like the bad guy in some of these movie, movies. He's just stewing in his lair until he finds an opportunity to launch out. He's not serving anyone but himself. The contrast is there intentionally. The Lord has turned his back on Saul because of Saul's disobedience, his willfulness, and his sin. And God told him that up front. And yet Saul lingers. In his opposition, not only to David, but in his running from the Lord. But before we leave this first 14 verses, let's add one more point here. Behold the constant care and keeping of God. How does verse 14 wrap up this scene? David remained in the strongholds of the wilderness in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. So he is relocated from Keilah back into the Judean hills. Lots of caves, rocks. Not much food, not much game. <coughs> He's in this wilderness, and we're told Saul sought him every day. There seems to be an intensity to the Hebrew there. Uh, daily, day upon day, Saul was after him. But God did not give him into his hands. You know, I think one of the great theological words in the English Bible is that three-letter word, B-U-T, but. <laughs> what does the word but do? It's a contrasting conjunction, is it not? It says, okay, here's the first part of the sentence. Here's the reality that we're seeing. Uh-oh, Saul's after him every day, but. <laughs> Meaning, that's not the whole picture. There's something other than what is, is clear and evident to your eyes. There's something unseen, but it begins to be seen, God does not give David into the hand of Saul because David is in the hands of his God. God's providential care is at work for his faithful, trusting servant. I so like what one commentator said. Here's, here's a quote. Believers can be assured even in the wilderness that as they give God weight and seek his kingdom, he will guide them and provide them all they need. Isn't that what Jesus himself told us? Matthew 6, verse 33. That's a memory verse. Who has it? 633. 
Louder. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Some of you need to seek the verse. And then seek the kingdom of God. Jesus is pretty clear there. Maybe this week, write Matthew 6.33 in your planner. Write it every day in your planner. Or program a little alarm on your phone. Because Jesus tells us what is the top priority for you and for me. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. David is being faithful. He's consulting the Lord. He's going wherever the Lord leads. He's waiting for the promises of God to come true. And it's not just David who is our example. Is it not Jesus as well? Jesus himself went through a wilderness. Jesus himself was afflicted by the enemy. Our wilderness experiences, says one commentator, can be endured not as punishment, but as the kind purposes of God to cultivate perseverance in us. God has his purposes. Why has this happened, Lord? We hear of a horrible event or something's come close to us. Lord, why? We may not know the exact reason, but we do know how God works. And if you're in the hands of God, no one can pluck you out of those hands. God doesn't give us snakes when we ask for fish or rocks when we ask for bread. He says, trust me, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Trust him and persevere by faith. See the compassion of our God for David, his servant. Then we come secondly to this little interlude here in the chapter, verses 15 through 18. It seems like a small part of the, uh, of the chapter. Um, yeah, by a way of illustration, I might say it's like the cream filling in a cookie. You know, This is a sweet part here, and I use the word sweet intentionally. See here the sweetness of a friend as Jonathan comes to impart strength to David. Look again at the verses in uh, verse uh, 16 in particular. Jonathan, Saul's son. See the contrast here of how one should behave? Rose and went to David out in the woods. He went to David to strengthen him in the Lord. To strengthen his hand in God. That's, that's a very picturesque way to say to strengthen his faith in God. For what is the hand? That's where we hold on. Hold on, David. That's what Jonathan comes and says, hold fast. I like the old sailor's tattoos. I thought of getting these once where across the fingers, H-O-L-D-F-A-S-T. Hold fast. That's one way to spell faith. You're holding fast. Even as God holds us in his hands. Jonathan comes to strengthen his friend. I want to give you a proverb as well. I don't know if you can hold your place and check it. I'll read it to you. Proverb 27, verse 9. That's near the end of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 27 in verse 9 says, Oil and perfume make the heart glad, and the sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. Proverbs 27, verse 9. The sweetness of a friend comes from his earnest counsel. It doesn't say the sweetness from the friend comes from his hug, from his giving you a punch on the shoulder. Hey, dude, I'm with you. No, it's from what he says. 
Does he speak truth? Does this friend come to encourage you and say something? One commentator has said, a true friend does not minimize or make light of sorrow or difficulty uh, that another may be experienced, but this true friend helps the other find strength in God. Jonathan's encouragement of David in the present circumstances is strengthening his hand in God. That's what we should do when we're together. When we're together with someone in crisis, we don't say, oh, well, that's not that bad. We don't try to necessarily minimize the the suffering. And we don't simply go to commiserate, oh, that is so bad, oh my. What do we do? We try to bring some light into the situation. We can't always change the circumstances, but we can change our perception. And sometimes what needs to be said is a reminder of the things unseen. Our God is for us. And Jonathan gives earnest counsel and speaks sweetly to David. Let me just pause here and give you an application. That's a to-do item. You should seek the sweetness of Christian friends. Yes, I know it's Jonathan who goes, but I think we should seek it out. And we should be ready and watching for it to come our way. Pray about this. Lord, I need the help of a friend. A Christian friend, I pray that you bring one across my path this week. We should seek this. Indeed, that's what the Bible tells us, that we should bear one another's burdens, that we should encourage one another, and all the more as we see the day of Christ's return approaching, we have plenty of commands that we could turn to that tell us to give this friendship and to seek this friendship. Indeed, this is one reason why I pray an end to covid Because the spiritual strength of a believer is served and helped by other believers. That's the way God chooses to work. That's the priority on being in church. That's the priority of gathering with other believers. And and perhaps for, for very valid reasons, that can only be through a screen or through a phone. But God intends us to share our lives. The Greek word koinonia, which we simply translate fellowship, sometimes loses its punch. It means participation. Roll up your sleeves and get intertwined with your arms and your lives. Koinonia means that. Jonathan could have sent a message to David. They didn't have Zoom, but maybe he could have scratched something out and sent it by a messenger. But he goes. Because it takes time to be involved in the lives of others. And this whole proverb that we quoted, oil and perfume make the heart glad. Well, that's only when the oil touches the skin or the perfume goes into the olfactory senses and you can smell it. There has to be proximity. There has to be contact. You have to be able to receive the friend's earnest counsel, to hear it and to know it. We should seek it and we should give it. But let's probe this just a little bit further because this is an important hinge. What exactly does Jonathan say or do while he's there? He he aimed to strengthen David's hand. Verse 17 really tells us, 17 and 18 tell us how Jonathan pulled it off. So you might want to take a note what you should do. Jonathan said to him, do not fear for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel and I shall be next to you. 
Saul, my father, also knows this. What is he doing? He's exhorting his brother not to fear Saul. Because the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Those who fear the Lord have the right perspective on every other fear. He brings truth. And he speaks the Lord's promises to David. You will be king. That's what the Lord told you. Everybody knows it. Even Saul knows it. So it's not a matter that God's word is unclear. Everybody knows what's right and wrong here, David. When we encourage one another with God's words and his promises, we speak that truth. We remind them, Romans 8, 28. We remind them, Philippians 1, 6. You give them a verse. You give them what God has promised. Perhaps that great line, I will never leave you nor forsake you. To remind our Christian friends in the day of their trouble of their relation to God, says William Blakey, to encourage them to think of his interest in them and his promises to them, to drop in their ears some of his assurances, is surely the best of all ways to encourage the downcast and send them on their way rejoicing. If someone hears your spiritual earnest counsels and they roll their eyes and they go, Oh, brother, and think you're just too spiritual, that says more about them than it does about you. I, I, I know, I remember an older lady many years ago in a church I served who always was, was saying, praise the Lord, every other phrase of her speaking. And she always was throwing verses left and right. And, and sometimes it wasn't as pleasant as it should have been. But to roll your eyes... And be dismissive of spiritual exhortation and counsel and comfort is a hardness of heart. The certainty of God's promises. Jonathan points David to God's commitment to him. As Paul asks, if God be for us, who can be against us? That question opens all sorts of vistas of hope for the believer. If God be for us, who can be against us? It's me and God against the world. It doesn't guarantee that you'll have a comfortable, happy little life without affliction or challenges, pains or problems. But if you're with God, where else would you want to be? Give help, seek help, and may that help be centered on the word of God, looking to strengthen others' grip on God. Now it says here at the very end, the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained, and Jonathan left. It's interesting, David does well after Jonathan leaves. We don't see him crashing in his faith and in his resolve. He's, he's doing okay. Because what is present here is faith in the Lord, not faith in Jonathan. Jonathan was older and more experienced in war, even though David was pretty valiant himself. David was trusting in their God more than in their friendship. Trust in the Lord and his word, not merely in the presence of your friends. Look at all the Lord's deliverances. 
Let me pause and take you to, we have to work quickly, uh, take you for a quick look at Psalm 54. Because, you know, when David was in this wilderness outside of the little village of Ziph, he's in the wilderness and, and he's uh, hiding from Saul and the guys in Ziph are trying to turn him in. He wrote Psalm 54. We, we've seen several psalms, haven't we? Some are in the 50s where David's on the run and he, he scratches out a song. One when he was uh, in uh, Moab and, and when uh, other occasions. But 54, the, the subtitle tells us this exactly. A masculine of David when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is David hiding among us? This is the same time frame. Because Jonathan had strengthened him and because David's grip on the Lord was strong, strengthened, he can write this song as the next scene unfolds. Um, oh God, save me by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have arisen against me, ruthless men to seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Verse 3 is so perfect for the part that comes last here in the chapter. These Ziphites hear that David's nearby and they say, let's find him and turn him into Saul. What did he ever do to them? What had David done to the Ziphites? They're strangers to him. And it's kind of crazy, this unprovoked aggression that we'll talk about. But here David is confessing his faith, verse 4 and 5 in particular. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. David's faith in the Lord is strong. He's hoping in the Lord. And he needs it. David has known deliverances from the Lord. And his confidence is in him. Even if there are no visible means of deliverance. Let's look at this final section quickly. The providential care of God. 1 Samuel 23 verses 19 to the end. There's this unprovoked aggression. Ziph and the people in Ziph. So they're Ziphites. There's an H in there. Ziphites. Uh, they want to turn David in for some reward. They seek his harm. And it's unprovoked. David wasn't trying to witness to them. And they kick him out. No, they're just unprovoked. How, how wonderful it is to know that we're not alone in such odd experiences when we have unprovoked aggression against us. They go and they talk to Saul, and behold, what we're told about Saul, his ungodly plotting and presumption. The contrast that this chapter paints between David and Saul continues. And in fact, here we have several verses describing Saul, which we read earlier, and he's ready to bless these people for turning in David. But Saul knows David is the Lord's anointed. What, what in the world does he mean when he says, the Lord who anointed David bless you for turning him into me? There's such a perverted way of thinking in Saul. He is deep in the dark side here. He is wayward and in open rebellion against not just David, against the Lord. And notice that his uh, ungodly plotting uh, says, you find as much information and bring it to me because I know David's cunning. Saul gets others to work for him in the plots that he has to harm David. The contrast, what did David do when he had opportunity to go to war? David consulted the Lord. Lord, you tell me what I should do. You direct my steps. 
The impulse of Saul is to manipulate and to use people for his own purposes. So Saul finds out more accurately where David is. There's the geography lesson here. There's another little village, probably just a crossroads, Ma'an, in these foothills. And Saul goes, and the text gets pretty exciting. Hold on to your hats. Um, Saul, verse 26, Saul went on one side of the mountain. What mountain? The mountain where David was hiding. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side of the mountain. Do you get the picture? How close is that? A couple thousand yards? Maybe, I don't know how big the mountain is around. You could probably hear something going on on the other side. David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture him. Uh, Verse 26 is, is full of a lot of detail there. Telling us that it was as close as close can be to David being caught and killed. How does God deliver? Well, God's deliverance comes from an unexpected direction. All of a sudden there's a message. Telegram, telegram for Saul. The whole nation's in jeopardy. The Philistines are coming. And Saul has to break away. He has to take up that duty, and and the heart of the king is still in God's hands. I would think with his blind rage that close to David, he wouldn't break away, but he does. And David and his men are delivered by God in this wonderful last second move. And there's an irony here too, isn't it? At the beginning of the chapter, who's the threat that David faces? It's the Philistines, and he beats them. And saves the little village and the crops. Here it's the Philistines that save David. What? That's not the way it works. That's often the way God works. The very one you might not expect. God could be positioning to do you good. We see that all throughout the history of Israel. Even into the New Testament. Unexpected deliverances from afar. If it be God's purpose to deliver you, says William Blakey, he has thousands of unseen methods to any one of which he may resort when to the eye of sense there seems not the shadow of a hope. God has How would we put it in the vernacular? God has a a thousand tricks he can pull out of his sleeve. Don't you underestimate your God and his capacity to deliver you. You don't see the way of escape. God does. And we know from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, there's a way of escape in every situation. When you are tempted, there is a way of escape. When you're tempted to lie, cheat, steal, or any other sin, there is a way of escape. God has put it there, and in his word says it's there. Look for it. Don't give in to temptations quickly. Here, when you're under attack, continue to trust the Lord for deliverance. You are the Lord's. He cares for you. And it may be the Lord's will for you is difficulties that continue. Ultimately, no one can snatch you out of his hands. But we know that for a precious few in the kingdom of God, God has called them to martyrdom. 
God has called them to other purposes that we would not sign up for. But in the wisdom of God, in the ways of God, his people dwell secure. God is able, out of the blue, to help you. Let me conclude with just a couple closing points, just to emphasize them as we end. Two points. Get hope. Get the great Christian hope. Well, how do you get hope? You get a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The way that Jonathan could encourage David was by saying, look at your relationship with your God, what God has done for you, what God's covenant to you has been. He said this and he will do it. What's your hope? Do you have Christ? Because if you have Christ with him, you have every good thing. You have a relationship with the Father because Jesus said clearly, no one comes to the Father but by me. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. The only way to hope is to have a relationship with the Lord, to have your sins forgiven, and to have a faith in him, in his resurrection, and his promise of your resurrection. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. David wrote those words. The psalmist did. I can say them. Can you say them? Is Jesus your great hope? Or is your hope in your own plotting and people helping you? Paul's testimony in 2 Timothy chapter 4, we don't have time to read the whole thing. He was at his wit's end. He was alone and he says this, but the Lord was at my side. 2 Timothy, Paul's testimony in his last written letter. Do you have Christ? Do you have that great hope? That blessed hope? Do you know Jesus Christ who said, I will never leave you or forsake you? And who said, I'm coming back soon. Paul would write in Romans 12, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Those are possible only with a relationship with Christ. So get hope in the person work of Jesus Christ. And then the second is to keep faith. To keep faith, that means to keep believing. We should live by faith and not by sight. And not only exercise faith for yourself, but encourage the faith of others. Remember God's past deliverances and encouragements. I think because David went through this situation and Jonathan helped him find strength in the Lord, many chapters later when David is by himself and the scene is equally dark, it's in chapter 30, Verse 6, it says, David strengthened himself in the Lord. David took just a mini retreat and pulled back, remembered his relationship with the Lord, remembered the Lord's word, put his faith in the Lord, all the things that Jonathan had helped him do. Even when he was alone, chapters later, he could find strength in the Lord. He kept faith. Is that you? Do you only do well spiritually when you're at church or when you're at Bible study or when you have that other Christian with you? Do you keep up your Bible reading when you're by yourself? Do you keep up your praying? Do you take strength in the Lord by faith in him? If that's hard, pastors, elders can help you with those spiritual things. That's why we're here. 
The older Christians help the younger Christians with all these good and godly habits and, and how to walk by faith. You're not alone in how to do this. In other words, let others be your Jonathan until you're strong enough to be a Jonathan to others. And may the Lord Jesus Christ himself stand at your side as you trust in him. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great provision of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his new covenant, which he accomplished, which he sealed with his blood, which guarantees our relationship with him will not end, that we will gain heaven, that you will crush our enemies and bring us to your side. Father, we thank you for the gospel, even as we see it in 1 Samuel, in the life of David, and in the lives of one another. Father, be at work. Bless your word. Draw men and women to faith in Jesus Christ today, we do ask. In Jesus' name, amen.